what we hadn't known in medicine is that all of us, even adults, have a uh, this neurological preset that these rhythmic sounds and motions, and for babies, it's irresistible. They need those motions. And to put a baby, you know, what we recommend for, for babies is that you put them flat on the back in a still bed in a quiet room, because we like to sleep in a quiet, still room. But from the baby's perspective, it is completely weird because inside for every second of those nine months, they're bundled like a little ball. So they're never on their back. They have constant sound and constant motion, constantly enveloped with the walls of the uterus. And then the instant they're born, we put them on the back, we put them in the quiet and in the stillness. And then we go, why isn't my baby sleeping better? Hi, I'm Bridget Garsh co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to chat with Dr. Harvey Karp, one of America's most trusted pediatricians, author of The Happiest Baby on the Block, and creator of the SNU Sleep System. Up until now, I've only interviewed working moms for this podcast. But Dr. Karp has been such a tireless advocate for supporting working parents and helping us get more sleep that I couldn't pass up the opportunity to learn from him and share his wisdom with all of you. About five days after I had returned to the office from maternity leave, this was pre-COVID, so yes, I was actually in the office. I was busy pumping and responding to emails when I felt my head getting heavier and heavier and heavier until plunk. I was fast asleep on my desk. I woke up mortified, convinced that I'd been sleeping for hours and fearful that I would be fired. In reality, it had only been five or 10 minutes, but the exhaustion is real. Because here's the thing, sleep is not just a nice to have, it's actually essential for our mental and physical well-being. As a pediatrician, Dr. Karp spent countless hours at appointments listening to the joys, concerns, and desperations of new parents in the earliest and most vulnerable stages of parenting. What did they need more than anything? Sleep. The medical research was clear. Sleep is essential for newborns and for parents. Dr. Karp set out to research how to help both newborns and parents get more of it. He invented the snoo, a responsive baby bassinet that recreates the environment in the womb. Dr. Karp has dedicated his life's work to empowering working parents by helping them and their babies get more sleep. Now he's on a mission to make the snoo more accessible through health insurance and through partnerships with employers so every new parent can sleep more. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cart, for joining me today on Work Like a Mother. It is an absolute joy to be speaking with you. Thanks, Bridget. I'm really, really happy to talk to you as well. Up until now, I have only interviewed and spoken with working moms, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity <laughs> to be able to chat with you. You have empowered so many working parents through your work, especially through giving them um, the gift of sleep. Thanks. And I thought it would be really interesting to start with 
how did you become really interested in helping babies sleep? Where did that come from? Well, actually, that's a funny question because it fits in with working like a mother because I would always tell my patients, um, so I practiced uh, pediatrics in Los Angeles for almost 30 years. Um, but what I would tell people is my job was half being a doctor and half being a grandmother because a lot of the things that you need to know when you're taking care of a baby, it's not like the cutting edge science type stuff. It's ancient wisdom and common sense. And, you know, what should I worry about? What shouldn't I worry about? And so in a lot of ways, you know, that was really my role. Um, I, I would put on a wig and walk in. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but um, you know, when you're dealing with young children, of course, that's the question, right? How do you get them to mm -hmm. sleep? And um, I was actually in a lecture uh, many, many years back when I was training at UCLA. Um, and I learned about uh, a tribe in Africa where the parents could calm their babies in under a minute, 95% of the time. We were telling parents at that time that, you know, some babies just cry, they have colic, we don't know why they scream, but you have to wait two or three or four months for it to go away. And it didn't make sense. I mean, these babies in Africa, I mean, they weren't mutant babies, they weren't different from our babies. So those parents must have known something. And that's what got me interested, trying to figure out what, what are we missing in our culture? What are we not understanding? And that really was led me through this whole, whole you know, kind of journey of discovery. And then, so from that initial sort of seed of exploration, where did your research take you from there? How did you discover, uh, you know, the fourth trimester and all of your ideas around how to calm babies and, and help them to sleep? Well, it was really a direct kind of a, a path because once you realize that it doesn't make sense, you know, you can put a man on the moon, you can speak to Bangalore in four seconds. We should be able to figure out why babies cry and why they're not sleeping. And in fact, we already knew, I mean, even though we pediatricians and doctors would tell parents, you know what? They're babies. They have to wake up a lot. It's going to take three, four, five months for this to all work out. But, you know, just deal with it. You know, it's going to be hard, but you just have to go through it. And then the baby will mature. And um, and yet at the very same time, we would tell parents, you know what? If your baby is really not sleeping well and it's crying a lot, you know what helps? Go for a car ride. And if you drove your baby all night from Boston to New York or wherever, LA to San Francisco, your baby would sleep an extra hour or two in the back seat. It's just what they do. And we do it as well. Adults fall asleep in trains and planes and cars and boats and rocking in hammocks and the sound of the wind comforts us. So I started to study this and what worked really, what were the studies about how to calm babies? And it was quite clear. It was swaddling and white noise and motion and sucking but the interest, interesting question is, why do those work? And why are they used in every culture around the world? And so it became clear that this was really a biological, you know, preset that, um, that all people have. And that led me to the realization that our babies are born four months too soon. Not that I would ever tell a pregnant woman that, you know, because uh, the nine months is hard enough. But from the baby's perspective, once they're born, they need you to be one big walking uterus, hold them, rock them, feed them all the time. And um, th that's what they need for four months, five months. And, um, 
And then it means that you need to understand if I'm imitating a uterus, what is it like in there? What is the baby's life like? And it turns out it is not quiet and still. It's a symphony of sensations. There's sound that's louder than a vacuum cleaner and constant motion. Even when you go to sleep, when you breathe, you're rocking your baby with your diaphragm every time you breathe. But I don't know what your experience was, but most women will tell you when I go to bed at night is when the baby gets most active. Mm -hmm. And when I'm up and walking and there's that jiggly motion, the fetus calms down. Did, did you have that experience as well? Yes, exactly. That experience. And I'm, I was smiling and chuckling when you were saying, you know, they're, they're born too soon and you would never tell that to a pregnant um, woman because uh, both of my children were very late. And I remember those nine and 12 days just feeling like an eternity. So I can't imagine another, yeah. you know, it three, is counting, beyond. counting the hours. Yeah. But, uh, but ultimately that's your job. And so that ended up uh, when I figured out that all of this was based on a reflex, what we hadn't known in medicine, and this is kind of, was a medical kind of recognition or observation is that all of us, even adults have a, uh, this neurological preset that these rhythmic sounds and motions are calming to us. Even when you meditate, people make these mantra sounds or they rock back and forth. It's very deeply a part of what it means to be a person. And for babies, it's irresistible. They need those motions. And to put a baby, you know, what we recommend for, for babies is that you put them flat on the back in a still bed in a quiet room, because we like to sleep in a quiet, still room. But from the baby's perspective, it is completely weird because inside for every second of those nine months, they're bundled like a little ball. So they're never on their back. They have constant sound and constant motion, constantly enveloped with the walls of the uterus. And then the instant they're born, we put them on the back, we put them in the quiet and in the stillness. And then we go, why isn't my baby sleeping better? Well, it's like you sleeping on a cement floor. If I took away your pillow and your mattress and your comforter, you would sleep, but you're not gonna sleep well. And so of course, babies have to be on the back for sleep. That's critically important because it's not safe for them to sleep on the side or stomach, but, um, but they don't sleep well. And so that led to writing a book called The Happiest Baby on the Block and actually a video. I don't even, I mean, I mean the book is a good book, but people really learn the techniques by watching this little 30 minute video. Um, uh, but then after teaching that for, for almost 15 years, um, I was frustrated because it was helping parents all day long and millions of people have used this, but it wasn't helping all night long. Um, and that's when I, I really decided that I needed to create a bed that was not a bed per se. Snoo is really not a bed. Snoo is really what we like to say is it's your older sister who moved in and said, Bridget, go to sleep. I'm going to hold and rock this baby all night. If the baby gets upset, I'll rock and shush more. And if I can't calm the baby in a minute or two, then I'm going to get you to do a feeding. So Snoo is not so much a bed as it is a 24-hour caregiver, an extra pair of hands that's there to, to be your little robotic nanny, so to speak, while you're um, trying to get some sleep or taking a shower or fixing dinner or the other hundred things that you're being on a Zoom call, the other hundred things that you have to do as, as a working mom or dad. I saw in a recent article that it's really your vision that Snoo will become like breast pumps are today, that it will be covered by insurance. 
That's exactly right. I mean, we have an initiative now that asks, want a free SNU? Anyone can get a free SNU. All they have to do is have their employer contact us so we can work with them to offer it as a benefit. So we have dozens and dozens of corporations now that provide SNU as a benefit. So when you have the baby, they say, you know, we want it. We love you. We want you to come back to work, but we want you to come back to work healthy and rested. Um, and so this will help take care of you for the next, you know, six months or four months or whatever they do. And um, and we're doing studies now to show that. I mean, we've already proven that SNU adds an hour or two hours to a baby's sleep. Mm-hmm. And that's important because lack of sleep leads to marital stress and postpartum depression. 20% of women get depression or anxiety. And we're doing studies now that are indicating that we can dramatically reduce postpartum depression. Um, that's our, our one of our major goals. Also dramatically reduce infant sleep death is a major goal. Um, we were already designated by the FDA a breakthrough device because we keep babies on the back. They cannot roll to the stomach. Mm-hmm. So that's 50% of infant sleep death. And then by sleeping better in the bed, you're not tempted to fall asleep with the baby in bed with you, which is like another 50% of infant sleep death. So we're we're hoping to dramatically reduce the risk of that happening to, to families and to babies. Um, but then, um, you know, all the other breastfeeding outcomes, if you're sleeping better, you're happier with breastfeeding, you're making more milk, and you can really do that job better. So, so ultimately, we believe that insurance companies and the government will subsidize this because we're going to show that they can save money by reducing the bad things mm-hmm. and by creating good experiences and feeling more successful as a parent. And you just touched upon something really interesting, which is offering this as a benefit and having working with employers who are offering that. Throughout COVID, you've been such an advocate for supporting working parents and really issuing a rally cry to companies to say, now is the time you need to be paying extra attention. Exactly. How do you see um, companies being able to support their working parents during COVID? Well, with our rental, you know, people, uh, when they first look at SNU, they go, oh, my God, that's an expensive baby bed. That's ridiculous. And of course, it's it's very, you know, sophisticated technology that goes into it. It's, it's really a robot. Really, the way to look at this is not as a bed, but as a service. Kind of like if you were to hire a 14-year-old to hold your baby for one hour a day, mm-hmm. you pay $15 or $20 for that. And so imagine for holding and rocking and soothing your baby for being available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, even if you buy the bed, it's only like $9 a day. And if you use it with your second child, it's like $4.50 a day, something like that. But we rent the beds now. And you can rent a bed for about four, a little bit more than $4 a day, mm-hmm. which is pretty much a Starbucks. And so that's how we talk to employers. And we say, listen, we can improve retention, reduce your need to recruit new employees, improve productivity, reduce errors and accidents, um, uh, reduce absenteeism, reduce healthcare costs. And we can make your employees feel so cared about. And we can do that for the cost of a coffee a day. I mean, that's that's why we have so many. I mean, usually it's hard getting into employers, but it's been very easy for us because it's so obvious how well this works. So, um, so that's been very cool. And even actually, now that we're in Europe and the UK and Australia, um, companies buy the beds from us, we sell it at a discount, and they give the bed, they say, here, here's a baby gift, here's a present. 
And of course, as a parent, you're going, oh my God, you just gave me a 24 hour helper for yeah. the first six months. You know, I love you. I'm going to work for this company forever because you took care of me when I really, really needed it. It fosters such loyalty to have that support and to feel well rested. Um, and your company specifically has done a lot of incredible work to support working parents, especially um, essential workers during COVID. Can you share a little bit more about those efforts? Yeah, you know, that was, you know, obviously as a doctor, I felt, um, and I'm not practicing now and and I'm a little bit older and, and for various reasons, I wasn't able to put myself on the front line. Um, but we wanted to do something to help support everyone who's being so heroic and so, so um, really uh, generous in putting themselves in harm's way to help all the rest of us. And so we started a program way back in March when the when COVID first hit to give beds to hospitals. Um, so we're now in a hundred hospitals from you know from coast to coast and all through the heartland um, where we've given beds to to support the nurses. The bed is a robotic nurse, if you will. So what we've seen now that we've studied so many different centers is that um, we reduce nurse labor by three to four hours a day. Um, just by helping to take care of the baby um, when the baby is upset and allow the nurses to do all the things they have to do with feeding and taking vital signs, et cetera. And hospitals use the bed for COVID patients. So if they're in isolation, the bed can be in the room with the mother. So the nurses don't have to go in as often and be exposed to the illness. Uh, we use it for babies withdrawing from drugs. We use it for premature babies. We use it for babies who have had surgery and they need extra help recovering. And we even use it in the postpartum room because as you may have experienced, you know, hospitals don't let you have your family come and visit, or maybe mm -hmm. you can have just one family member mm -hmm. or just a doula. And so um, hospital ha hospitals have snoo in the room with a mother to act like a little caring assistant. And, um, and that way the mom can sleep and doesn't fall asleep with the baby in bed with her, which is happening a lot because the mothers are, they don't know what else to do because they're so tired and they, you know, they, this is kind of one of the, the big lies in our culture. Mm -hmm. Moms today think, um, you know, a, a normal mother takes care of a baby. That's what we do, you know, and so just suck it up and deal with it. It's hard, but you know, that's, that's your job. That's your role. And even in the hospital that the nurses leave the baby with you and say, honey, this is, you know, you'll feed your baby and hold your baby, do skin to skin, all those great things. And you think that that's your job, but it turns out that's not a mother's job. Mm -hmm. That is the job of the grandmother, the aunt, the older sister. And the next, I mean, you're supposed to have, you're supposed to be babied as much as you're babying the baby. And, um, and for the last hundred years in our culture, we've bought into a myth, which is that the mother's role is to be this matcha goddess, you know, and just do everything perfectly. And of course you will do, you know, a lot and you will be there for your baby, but you should have people being there for you as well. And especially when you have a newborn and you're in the hospital. And so um, I think that the day is coming where there'll be a snoo in every postpartum room so that the mother will have, because we don't have enough nurses to go around and we want the mom and the baby to be together. Um, and so the snoo will be like a little helper in the room uh, to help, um, you know, give the mother the support she needs so she can get 40 winks and kind of be able to get her strength back to be able to go home and do everything she needs to do. Right. There's often um, this like 
switch when the baby comes, the attention moves in some ways away from the mother to Mm -hmm. the baby. And there's a lot of attention given to the baby, but moms are recovering from an incredible demand on their body to give birth to this human. And so, um, I, I really admire what you're talking about in terms of the the equal focus on mom and baby and how that strengthens their relationship by helping her be there for the baby. It's really essential. And then through the happiest baby and the five S's and the fourth trimester concept, we really empower, actually, we've been teaching f- classes on the five S's and hospitals and military bases and WIC programs and teen parenting programs for the last 15 years. And what's interesting about that is the goal is, of course, to give mothers the skills to be, you know, really masters at calming their fussy babies, but to give it to other caregivers. So the mother-in-law or the husband or the boyfriend or the partner or the spouse, you know, so that, that the mom can be the feeding expert and the support team can be the calming and the sleep experts. And I love it because with SNU, you know, with SNU, you just put them in, you push a button and it just works. It has all that um, intelligence built into it. And so I love it that, you know, oftentimes the partner is the one who says, you know what, I'm the sleep expert. I'll put the baby in, I'll push the button. Right. You know? <laughs> and they feel very purposeful in, in doing that. <laughs> and empowered really to, to, take ownership of that area of the child's life. It's, I remember when I was um, at a new parent group with my first and it felt like to me, all of the other new parents, I would hear people saying, Oh, that's a hungry cry. Oh, that's a tired cry. Oh, that's just a fussy cry. And these are babies who, you know, it's they're they're probably eight weeks old between eight and 12 weeks old. And I thought I had a broken like maternal instinct because yeah, I couldn't all the, it out. yeah, all the cries sounded the same to me. I would go through like a little cycle of, okay, we'll try feeding you. That the doesn't checklist. work. Do you have yeah. a diaper? Like, does your diaper need to be changed? Nope. Okay, maybe you're tired. Let's try that. And there's so much, I think, overwhelm. There's so much room for doubt, um, especially mm-hmm. in those first few weeks. Uh and if you don't necessarily have that army of people supporting you, mm-hmm. how what what advice have you given to new parents in those early in those early weeks, and especially in those moments of sort of doubt and and not knowing what to do? Um, that's you know it's a challenge, and the big challenge is um, not only do we not have extended family helping us. But many people have a baby. They've never even touched the baby in their lives. And I mean, just because you've been in a in, in an airplane doesn't mean you can fly it. <laughs> I mean, just because you've seen a baby. I mean, on the other hand, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, there basically there are three skills that you need to be good at to have a positive experience with your baby. It's feeding the baby, calming, crying, and getting sleep. I mean, changing the diaper and bathing a baby, those things you have to learn how to do, but they're, you know, they're pretty much things that are reasonably familiar, but feeding, crying and sleep are things that if you, if you fail at any one of those, you really feel terrible. And so um, uh, feeding, fortunately, we have lots and lots of support for moms, uh, you know, lactation consultants and La Leche League and, um, you know, books and magazines. And of course there's formula if if you're not able to, uh, or choose not to breastfeed your baby. 
But um, for, for, for sleep and crying, um, other than the happiest baby and the five S's, there hasn't been a lot. And in fact, like I said earlier, we've been teaching parents that, well, there's nothing you really can do, but there is something that really you can do. And it works almost magically when you really learn these skills. Um, and so it's really important to spend a little time to get the help you need, whether that's lactation consult consultation early on before, you know, people say, well, breastfeeding is painful. Well, it really shouldn't be. I mean, you may have to take a deep breath for the first five seconds when your baby latches on, but it shouldn't be that you're crying and you're in pain, you know, for an extended period of time. That isn't normal and you should get help for that. Um, but it turns out once you learn these basics, um, you gain confidence and you start to realize that, you know, billions of other women have done this. I can do this as well. And then the more, the better you get at it, of course, the more you feel like, you know, I'm, I'm a really good mom. I can really do this. Um, listening to a baby's cry and figuring out what they're telling you um, is actually, it's a, it's a little bit tricky. There are some sounds they make before they cry. Like, you know, when you're, when babies are hungry, they start to mouth and ma, ma, ma is a little bit like that sound. So um, there may be some hints you can get at why a baby is fussing, but once they're crying, it's like a smoke alarm, right? I mean, the smoke alarm goes off. You don't know if your house is burning down or you burn some toast because it's going to make the same screech um, regardless. And, and a lot of babies are like that as well. Usually by two, three, four months, you can start to figure out a little bit the, the different cries. But in those first couple of months, it's really, really hard. Well, you've helped so many parents along the way. Did you think about having children yourself? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I have a stepdaughter. So, so she's my, she's my 100% daughter, even though not biologically so. Um, and um, yeah, we tried. Unfortunately, we weren't, we weren't able to. And so it was something that, um, you know, we didn't have the opportunity. My daughter is now pregnant, which is exciting. So I'll get to oh, have wow. that experience with her. Um, so, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I've helped him take care to take care of, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of babies. So I feel like I'm the, you know, I'm the grandparent to the grandmother to, to a lot of kids. And, um, and that's been one of the joys of my life and, and not just for babies. I mean, there's something called happiest toddler on the block, which is kind of counterintuitive, but incredibly helpful techniques for kids eight months up to five, six, seven, 14, 33, 55, because we, you know, we all become toddlers when we get upset enough. Um, and these are techniques that really help parents um, not just to stop. You can, you can stop 50 to 75% of temper tantrums really quickly and respectfully, uh, but more importantly, to build children who are patient and cooperative and really have emotional resilience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to become more and more important in this complex world that we live in. And so, um, so I'm, I'm excited as I do a lot of talking about snoo and baby sleep and the first six months of life to really help parents more and more um, with, with older kids and, and, and invite people to our website. We have, we have hundreds and hundreds of articles that are for free um, that people can come and learn about babies and toddlers and kind of learn some of these tricks and tips. 
Well, I feel like I'm envisioning on your shelf behind you soon. You'll have a best like grandpa mug sitting there and you'll right. definitely have earned the title. I, I, your, your daughter will be very lucky to have your help with the baby. When Thanks. you think when we, can't, when we can't be there, we actually made this little teddy bear now that has white noise Our our special. We have very special sounds in Snoo. It's one yeah. of the things that distinctive about it. But yeah, so if I can't be in, in New York with my daughter, I'll, I'll leave the little grandpa teddy bear. Yeah, the grandpa teddy bear. As you think about her having her first child, what advice would you give to her? What advice would you give to first-time parents before they even have a baby? You know, what I would always tell parents in my practice um, is if they had a bumper sticker, it would say, be flexible or die. I mean, honestly, it's important to have a, an ideology, a philosophy. How do I want to raise this child? Mm -hmm. But kids will throw you curveballs. And, um, and the one thing I think people learn over and over again with their kids is to recognize who their child is as an individual, not who they wanted them to be, but who they really are, and to be supportive of them in that. That's the most important job of a parent. And, um, and uh, one of the simple things in the beginning, and you really can learn this even in the first days of life. I don't know if this was your experience, but what's your child's temperament like? Are they passionate? Are they calm? Are they easygoing? Are they intense? Um, and, um, and, and respecting them and, and really celebrating them for, for you know, who they are and what they bring to the family. Uh, you're reminding me of, I'll never forget with my first, he, he must've been, I think it was maybe night two in the hospital and the nurse was bringing him over after doing something. And he pulled his head back and looked right at her. And I thought, oh my gosh, like you're so tiny. How are you even doing that? And he has definitely persisted in that way of he is curious he wants to know what's going on all the time looking around mm -hmm. and he he if he wants something um he's very strong-willed and and he'll make it make it known and and let you know yeah it's so cool to be able to make those observations i think that's really really fun well, thank you so much, Dr. Karp, for spending some time with me um, and for sharing so much of your story of all the work that you are doing now, all the work that you have done and what you hope for the future. It's really exciting to hear what um, you're working on in terms of making SNU more accessible for uh, parents overall and um, all the work that you do to support toddlers as well. I think that was definitely a learning for me was thinking about, I spent a lot of time thinking about birth, thinking about those early months, and then toddlerhood hit us. And we thought, what do we do now? And we're really overwhelmed. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, just a little funny story about that. But when you're having a baby, I, and I've seen this over and over again, you know, people buy 10 books about babies. How do I make pureed vegetable? How many a different book about pureed fruit? Not that you necessarily read all the books, but you you know you feel good about yourself because you've gotten them and you're getting prepared. Exactly. And then oftentimes never buy another book about ch child development for the rest of their kid's life. And one of the things I joke with parents about, but you know, 
it's really different raising toddlers and toddlers really start at seven, eight, nine months. And so if I were to give one last piece of advice, it, it's to watch five hours less of Game of Thrones and five hours more just reading a toddler book, any any toddler book, but to learn a little bit about how their brains work and, and what they need. And you'll use it every day. I mean, um, the, the techniques can be so helpful um, because it's, this is a baby, you know, you don't know how easy it is raising a baby until you have toddlers and you go, oh my God, the baby part was the simple part. Yeah, well, and I think, the what I've learned along the way in my limited knowledge is it also helps me to be more forgiving and I think patient with myself because mm -hmm. it's very easy in a tantrum or in a difficult situation with a toddler to turn towards yourself to like sort of cast blame or think about what am I doing that's causing this situation and when you know how they're developing and developing and what like parts of their behavior are just normal developmental behavior, it helps me You're feel so better right. as a parent as well. Yeah. And to, and to not take that as a, as a criticism of you or who you are, you know, mm -hmm. it really helps to have a mindset about what your work is. If you know what your, your work is, then it, it helps you know what to do with babies. That mindset is the fourth trimester for these first four or five months, you're imitating a uterus. You're holding a lot, you're rocking a lot, you're shushing a lot, you're meeting your baby's needs as much as you can. Um, and, and by the time they're five months, six months old, then they're like little beings, they're smiling, they're interacting, they're ready to be in the world. For toddlers, the key concept is toddlers are not little children. Coddler, toddlers are really, they're kind of like cavemen. They're kind of uncivilized. And your job between nine months and five years of age is to civilize them, to have them say please and thank you and wait in line and share their toys and do all those nice things that they're supposed to do. And even for a one-year-old or an 18-month-old, they might say thank you, or they might, you know, do a do a little hand gesture, a hand sign of thank you. But it doesn't mean they're going to be, you know, they're still little Neanderthals in a certain sense. And so you can't criticize their behavior too much because you have to recognize that in the final analysis, they're still just learning how to be part of the family. And you have to recognize that your ability to civilize this child is going to take years. And so you don't want to criticize yourself so quickly um, or let other people criticize you for that matter, you know, um, um, when they don't behave perfectly in the way you want them to over those years. Yes, such wise words. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me. And um, we look forward to sharing your story with all of our listeners. Thank you so much, Bridget. I really, really appreciate it. Thank Take you. Care. Be safe. Have a great one. You too. Thanks. Work Like a Mother is produced by Neighbor Schools. Neighbor Schools is a startup in Boston that I co-founded in 2018 to help parents find daycare. As a first-time parent, finding childcare can feel scary and intimidating. At Neighbor Schools, we help you find daycare you'll feel really good about so you can go back to work with the peace of mind that your little one is getting the socialization, support, and stimulation they need to learn and grow. We've helped thousands of moms and dads figure out the daycare search. Check us out at neighborschools.com and when you get in touch, mention that you discovered us on the podcast. 
Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time.